For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. I'm Hope Perry. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Wilson Kahn. You're listening to Daybreak. On January 5th, two Democrats won Senate seats in Georgia, earning them a vital majority in the chamber. We're here to tell you what happened. Later in this episode, we talk to Assistant Professor of Politics LaFleur Stevens-Dugan about the voter engagement efforts that were crucial to Democrats' success in the runoffs and what the results of the race mean for the future of Southern politics. It's Tuesday, January 19th. On January 6th, the U.S. Capitol was stormed by pro-Trump extremists. In the chaos, the Democrats' victories just the day before in two key Senate seats in Georgia became second-page news. Just like the attack on the Capitol, these Senate victories have far-reaching implications for both the goals of the Biden administration and our understanding of the role racial identity plays in politics. Two weeks ago, Daybreak previewed the Senate race. And in this debrief episode, we'll evaluate the characterizations of the race we made, discuss the consequences of the Democratic victory for both polling outlets and President-elect Biden's agenda, and discuss what this victory signifies for the future of Southern and Black politics with Professor Stevens Dugan of the Princeton Politics Department. After just a few hours on the night of January 5th, elections experts at The Economist, The New York Times, and The Cook Political Report all had the same notion about the race. Democrats were overperforming in almost every voting category and many key counties and were likely to win the races. Although neither race was called quickly, it soon became apparent that Warnock and Ossoff would both win by more than the 0.5% margin required to avoid an automatic recount. Warnock ended up winning by 2%, or 94,000 votes, while Ossoff won by 1.2%, or 56,000 votes. Both margins were very close to final polling averages, which saw the two candidates sitting at 2.1% and 1.8% leads, respectively. This high-profile success was desperately needed for pollsters after what was a rather embarrassing fall polling season nationwide. In fact, some speculate that high-profile pollsters like Siena College and the Washington Post stayed out of Georgia this winter for fear of compounding another poor result on top of their dismal November performance. Despite the hesitancy for more reputable pollsters to survey Georgians, there was a reason to believe that Georgia polling wouldn't have ended in disaster. The Peach State was one of the best for statewide federal polling in the lead up to November. A prevailing view on why polling error has been so significant in 2016 and 2020 nationwide is that Donald Trump turns out voters who are distrustful of the media in addition to low propensity voters, or people who don't typically vote. Because of this, a large number of Trump supporters are unlikely to discuss their preferences with a pollster from a major media organization, and they also may have failed to pass the likely voter screening, which pollsters use to decide which interviews to include in their tallies. As a result, when Trump is not on the ballot, pollsters theorize that they may get a clearer picture of the electorate in their polling. Of course, considering that Georgia polling was accurate in 2020, it is hard to know if this had any effect on the accuracy of 2021 polling in the state. Despite this uncertainty, It's reasonable to expect pollsters to point to their 2021 results, as well as the 2018 midterms, as an indication that their errors were temporary and Trump-related. Moving on to the issues which affected the race, it's not shocking the Democrats won. But this race was probably Republicans to lose coming in. While it's impossible to know for sure, critics spread enthusiastically about a stolen election by Trump and other Republicans probably hurt voter turnout especially in deep red rural counties, where Leffler and Purdue both fell short of the margins they needed to overcome the Democratic advantage built in Metro Atlanta. As mentioned in the preview, Leffler and Purdue also significantly hurt their chances by delaying their support of $2,000 stimulus checks. 
Around the time that they announced their opposition to the policy, Democrats netted approximately two points in polling averages. Correlation is not necessarily causation. This polling drop also tracked with the announcement that some senators would challenge the November election results. But there is little doubt that criticism towards the Republicans' relief stance was harmful to their chances. The fact that Purdue and Leffler both underperformed compared to the share of the vote Republicans overall received in November suggests that it was likely a combination of these factors that led to their loss. In the preview, we also mentioned that Democrats sought to increase turnout in Metro Atlanta through door-to-door canvassing. Early new voter registration numbers suggest that these efforts were a major success. This helped Democrats expand their already impressive margins. Now turning the focus to this election's ramifications for Black politics in the Deep South and nationwide. Warnock will be the second Black senator from the Deep South since Reconstruction, joining South Carolina's Tim Scott. Both Warnock and Ossoff were also fairly liberal, dispelling the myth that only blue dog moderates could win in the region. Georgia's trends of growing urban areas and diversifying suburbs are common in other areas in the Deep South, so it's worth wondering, will these trends move other states like the Carolinas leftward? How will Black organizers and voters wield their growing electoral power? Which Black politicians hold the power to direct agendas in a new, more liberal South? Furthermore, will Republicans shift their racialized strategy in response? For more, Daybreak's Hope Perry talked to Lafleur Stevens-Dugan, an assistant professor in the politics department. <laughs> professor Stevens-Dugan is an assistant professor of politics here at Princeton, specializing in racial attitudes, public opinion, and Black politics. She's the author of Race to the Bottom, How Racial Appeals Work in American Politics. Thank you so much for joining us here at Daybreak, Professor. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So as you know, of course, last week, Georgia elected its first ever Black senator, Reverend Raphael Warnock. What were your initial reactions to his win? You know, I have to say, I was a bit surprised. I was a little skeptical that an African-American Democrat could win in the South, which, as I'm sure you know, and your audience knows, he is the first African-American Democrat to win uh, in the South post-Reconstruction. And so... I was, I guess, hopefully optimistic that he might pull out a win, but I still, given what I know about um, Black candidates uh, performing, particularly in runoff elections statewide, um, I was a little skeptical if he would actually be able to pull it out in the end. But um, as we see, he did, and it's historic. Yeah, so that kind of brings up an interesting interesting point. So in the last 25 to 30 years, you know, Georgia has often been viewed as a pretty solidly red state. Uh, the last time it went blue for a president was in 1992. The last time they elected a Democratic senator was in 2000. So this was in no small part due to Democratic turnout that was unusually high, especially, as you said, for a runoff election in Georgia. So much of this has been attributed to organizers such as Stacey Abrams, Deborah Scott, and Seufa, and many others. Can you talk a little bit about their significance in this election in particular? Yeah, you know, what's really encouraging about them is that they are flipping uh, the Southern strategy on its head, right? So we've heard a lot about the New South and the New Southern strategy. So historically, the Southern strategy was one of using race as a wedge issue to um, essentially talk about things like welfare, uh, law and order, uh, crime, things that maybe, although they're not explicitly about um, African-Americans have been used in our politics to, um, you know, essentially signal uh, negative attitudes and uh, opinions about African-Americans, right? So that's kind of what we've thought about historically when it comes to the South and even uh, contemporarily. Uh, What we saw 
in this election is that those organizers like, you know, Stacey Abrams or Latasha Brown, that they decided that they were going to flip this on uh, its head and really focus on driving Black turnout and expanding uh, the electorate. And so, for example, someone like a Latasha Brown, who focused on this idea that uh, Black voters matter, it was a project that was centering Black voters and not any one particular candidate necessarily, but uh, thinking about the importance of Black voters, their issues, and how um, they could get them heard in a multiracial, multi-generational coalition. So, you know, so it wasn't just on Black voters, but obviously they were um, a driving force. So do you think that there's been a marked liberal shift over time in Georgia or are results like this runoff more reliant on those strong organizational efforts like you just talked about? Ah, that's interesting. So I'll say it's kind of a little bit of both. So if we flash back to 2016 and I think, you know, a lot of our um, political science theories weren't expecting uh, that a President Trump could be elected, someone without any, you know, political experience, things of that nature. Now, you might recall that a lot of the sort of autopsy after that election, uh, maybe not specifically about Georgia, but in places like Milwaukee or Philadelphia, um, was this, or Detroit was like, you know, Black people uh, kind of let the country down or that they didn't come out to vote. They didn't come out at those historic record levels that they had in 2008 or 2012 in the way that they did for Obama. Uh, so I want to kind of couch what's happening in 2020 or what happened in 2020, 2021 uh, in some of that, right? So there was, I think, a large narrative of like, uh, you know, Black people should have uh, turned out more and maybe not necessarily thinking about some of the infrastructure uh, in terms of the party, the Democratic Party, doing more to kind of facilitate that process. Um, So that's one. And so in the context of that, where we saw, you know, just four years ago, a narrative of uh, Black voters being blamed, I think what we saw on the ground in Georgia was an effort to center Black voters, uh, not in grievance, because just being mad about um, a Donald Trump is not enough, I think we saw in 2016, to motivate people uh, to get to the polls. And so this was, a, I think, a endeavor that was really centered in hope and optimism and uh, the power of, you know, one's actual vote. And I think that's a little different than maybe what we saw in 2016. In terms of, I feel like I'm kind of missing your question now, <laughs> going on a bit of a tangent. But, no, that's good. And, but what we saw also um, with this Georgia election is that there was a changing demographic. So to your point about like, you know, did this happen over time? Demographics are not destiny. So it's not enough to just say, oh, um, you know, the electorate in Georgia is 33% African-American. And so that's going to be enough to pull it off. One, you know, African-Americans don't represent a majority, even if, you know, they're a significant, uh, you know, fraction of uh, the electorate. But two, those people have to be mobilized, right? It's, um, and what we saw there, and often not necessarily from Um, actually the party infrastructure, but from these other groups were the ones who really took a chance and ran the numbers. You know, Stacey Abrams, what she was doing with Fair Fight, this wasn't something that just came about in this election cycle, but it was a a strategy that had been 
pursued for many years as the demographics of uh, Georgia changed. So it was a, you know, it was a long time uh, coming. So talking about the significance of Black voters in the South, as you just were, uh, who obviously make up a large portion of the population and really turned out this year in Georgia, um, as you just said, do you think that this past election and maybe Warnock and Ossoff's campaigns in Georgia in particular were an example of a genuine appeal to learn and understand the needs of Black voters? Hmm. Their campaign specifically, if they were making an effort to know their issues? Yeah, I mean, I think... You, we could really talk about either. I mean, we could focus a little bit more on these on the Georgia Senate um, in particular, but whichever one. You know, I I think you know the issues that were uh, pertinent to African American voters are the issues to some degree that well, I started to say that are pertinent to all Americans, but given how divided we are, maybe that's not the case, but. Um, a lot of the issues that they were focusing on, I think, were issues, you know, things like, you know, the pandemic, which is affecting uh, all Americans. Um, I think sometimes candidates can actually, I think, make a mistake. I think this was evident, say, for example, in a Bernie Sanders campaign, that when thinking that they're going to speak to Black voters and quote unquote Black issues, that it has to be, say, maybe around, say, something like criminal justice. That's not to say that criminal justice reform is not, you know, essential issue, but so are things like, you know, a $15 minimum wage or, again, addressing the pandemic. Not every issue necessarily has to be racialized. And it might seem odd that I'm saying that given that we're in a context of a pandemic that has had disparate impact on African-Americans and also um, another crisis of uh, just systemic racism. And so uh, to be clear, those things do motivate and um, energize Black voters, but you know, it, those aren't the only things. And I think uh, what Warnock and Ossoff were able to do in terms of building that sort of multiracial coalition uh, was to be able to talk about, you know, those uh, systemic racial issues, but also things that might have been, you know, more common across racial lines as well. I want to shift a little bit. So many see Stacey Abrams as an icon of the modern Democratic Party, especially with her organizing experience. But more establishment figures such as South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, the third ranking Democrat in the House of Representatives, clearly still hold a lot of influence and power. Uh, mm -hmm. What might this election say about where Black political leadership is headed in the coming years? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't think it has to be an either or. Clearly, Jim Clyburn was a kingmaker when it came to the Democratic presidential primaries. Um, but there's also a wing of I don't even want to say more progressive because I think someone like a Jim Clyburn is very progressive, right? So um, there's a place for the establishment. I hmm, I don't even I wouldn't even say that Stacey Abrams is anti-establishment, right? She's working through a lot of and working with a lot of the sort of party infrastructure. So my take in terms of what it says about uh, I guess black political leadership is that one. Black political leadership is, even in the South, I think maybe more progressive than people might um, necessarily expect, right? So we're, if we're looking at, say, a lot of these uh, 
major cities in the South, whether we're talking about Birmingham or Little Rock or Charlotte, right? They're led by uh, pretty progressive Black mayors and, uh, you know, someone like a Randall Wolfen or a Uh, we might not have necessarily thought could have gotten elected in the South, right? But these are cities that have uh, large, if not majority, Black populations. And these mayors are getting elected, pushing um, a very progressive agenda, and maybe one that I guess you could say is a bit anti-establishment. And so there's, I think, place for both. But I think as uh, the Black South gets more of a sort of national stage or national attention, they're able to maybe dispel some of the myths about the South in terms of maybe a lack of progressive uh, politics or that, you know, it's the center of sort of negative racial attitudes or racism. And I think if, you know, I had to speak to that, I would just say that race is endemic to the United States. And it's actually, I think there is a danger, I think, in kind of thinking like, you know, that's just, you know, something that's uh, sort of the purview of the South or only happens in the South. Right. And in some ways, I think we're seeing more uh, progressive politics in the South than uh, one might expect and maybe even more so than we might even seeing some of like our Northern regions of the country. That brings us perfectly to my last question, which is, so in your book, Race to the Bottom, you talk about how politicians still rely on quote, negative racial attitudes for political gain. So the day after Reverend Warnock was elected the first black Senator from Georgia, the country watched a mob of insurrectionists, many of whom were wearing or carrying white supremacist and anti-Semitic slogans and symbols attack the US Capitol. So at what point do you think that America will reach uh, a place where these forms of hate will no longer be such a prominent part of the country's politics? Hmm. Well, I think it's a long time coming. (laughs) You know, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I think what we've seen from our politics and what history teaches us is that there are always going to be some strategic Um, politicians who are able to kind of appeal to people's most base instincts uh, for political gain. And it's an effective political tool to kind of scapegoat the other, you know, whether that's Jewish people or African-Americans or Latinos or immigrants, whatever the case may be. And so there's always that fraction of politicians who are able to do that. And, um, what we know about, I guess, voters' political psychology is that uh, there are many people to whom those types of messages appeal. And we can see, you know, even in the case of an election of uh, Donald Trump in 2016, Donald Trump, you know, the advent of um, these types of, you know, anti-Black or anti-Jewish attitudes, you know, they didn't arrive with him. He was just able to appeal to them or stoke them in a way that I think previous politicians had just done more subtly. So I, you know, we're quite divided as a country and almost half the country felt comfortable, perfectly comfortable uh, voting for him in spite of some of his record on uh, these issues. And so I don't think that, you know, with the transition to Biden-Harris administration that that's suddenly going to go away or even in you know the next decade or two that 
these won't be problems that we're still seeing to some degree. So now that Democrats control the Senate, what does their legislative agenda look like? Coronavirus relief is at the top of the list. Joe Biden recently unveiled his $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, which includes $1,400 checks for individuals and various other types of relief, along with funds for vaccine distribution. Another thing to look out for, when will Majority Leader Schumer begin the impeachment trial of Donald Trump? Will he ever? It's been reported that some Biden aides have discussed abandoning the trial together, fearing it would prevent Biden from passing many important early bills, such as coronavirus relief, and distract from cabinet confirmations, which he can achieve with a simple majority. Most other bills will require 60 votes to pass thanks to the filibuster, which means some Republicans will have to cross the aisle for Biden to pass any major reforms on voting rights, criminal justice, and clean energy, all of which his administration views as key priorities. Some progressives have called for Democrats to vote to remove the filibuster so that policies don't have to be catered towards moderate Republicans. But even moderate Democrats like Joe Manchin seem to have no appetite for ambitious reform on the filibuster or other key issues. Many of these bills that are liable to the filibuster likely won't pass alone, so Democrats might try to wrap things like tax reform and environmental regulations into budgetary bills, which would get these reforms through with a simple majority. There are a few issues that Democrats and Republicans can be expected to collaborate on, but one of them is taking on big tech. Liberals are concerned that companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon are becoming overpowered monopolies, while conservatives are concerned about being censored on these internet platforms. That's all for Daybreak's coverage of the Georgia Senate runoffs. Special thanks to Professor Steven Stugan for speaking to us. Today's episode was written by Wilson Kahn and produced under the 145th Managing Board of The Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horan, Class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. I'm Hope Perry. I'm Wilson Kahn. Have a wonderful day.